I'll invite our reader to come and read from Joshua 2. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent his message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I do not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly, you may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did in Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts sank, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hill so that the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return, and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless, when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family, into your house. If any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to, the Joshua, came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Thank you, Liz. I invite Charles to come and explain what all that, what all that means. Well, Joshua chapter 2, a chapter you know very well, I guess. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the familiar passages of your word, as well as the more un unusual ones and unknown ones. And we bless you for this story about Joshua and his friends and uh, if we lived so long ago in that place, we would have seen him and could be, even have been part of this. Who knows? 
But Father, we're asking that the same Holy Spirit who inspired your word would speak to us now and inspire us to understand not just what happened in Joshua's day, but how this describes the kind of God you are. For that's what we want to know more than anything else, Lord. Not just stories of wonderful people in times long ago and far away. We want to know you, Lord. Show us yourself. Through this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 103 is one of the most exuberant psalms in the Psalter. And it starts like this. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all his benefits. Great one, isn't it? You get down to verse 8, and it says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, bounding in love. When John wants to write a letter to his friends, not his gospel, but the letters, he writes to them and includes this phrase, God is love. And when he's describing God like that, he's talking about the God we know as a God of the Old Testament, as it were. Yet you would have to say that for many Christians, I don't know how many here, but for many Christians that's not an assumption, that's not a conclusion they will come to reading the Old Testament. You'd not read the Old Testament and say, ah, oh, God is love. Often they say, no, God mostly has got a frown on his face. And he's waiting to give someone a metaphorical clip round the ear. He's all into punishment and judgment and harshness and so forth. That's the conclusion people often draw reading their Old Testament. And here in the Psalm 103, he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Again, are not things we would associate necessarily, so it seems, with the God we discover in the Old Testament. We tend to ref we keep those things until we meet Jesus in the new. But I'd like to suggest to you that Joshua 2 disproves that. It makes the psalmist's point absolutely here. That he is a God who is full of compassion, a God who is full of grace, who is slow to anger, and who is abounding in love. We're about to read in this book, I don't know how far we'll get, we'll see how it goes. I'm watching your eyes and all that sort of stuff and you know, when you get a bit bored I shall move on to something else. Um, but it seems to me a book about conquest and war and fighting and so forth. Which is what children are into but not so much what adults are into really. And compassion? Is there any compassion here? Is there any grace here? Slow to anger? Is there abounding love here in a book that deals mostly with one nation going in and wiping out another nation and taking their land? Doesn't seem much grace there, does it? No love abounding there, no slow to anger, if we read it superficially. But if we read it carefully, I think that's what we find. Because way back in Genesis chapter 15, you remember Abraham was promised the land. And this is hundreds of years ago now. He's promised the land. And he's told the day will come when his descendants would be 400 years slaves, enslaved by another nation. But God said, you will come back to this land when the sin of the Amorites, who are one of the nations, and under which you can put all the nations of the promised land, one of the nations when the sin of the Amorites is complete. 
So already God was fed up, if I can put it that way, with the sin of the Amorites. But he's going to wait hundreds of years before he's going to call them to account. Wouldn't you say that's that's going slow to anger? They deserve judgment in Abraham's day. They're not going to get it until Joshua's day, hundreds of years later. And the reason for that? What's the reason for that delay? We'll come to that a little later on. But you have to say God is slow to anger. How many people have you heard arrogantly suggest that if there really is a God, then he'll stop me doing this or strike me down dead and they do something blasphemous and then they stand there arrogantly and say, see, no bolts from heaven, so there can't be a God and move on to something else. You've heard people say that before. They don't know God. That's not the kind of God we believe in. He's slow to anger. But such actions will one day call down his judgment. And abounding in love? Well, here's a story about... a nation going in to take another nation, but wrapped around this little story in chapter 2 is another story, almost totally insignificant in human terms, but wonderfully significant in God's terms. A story about Rahab, who may be an innkeeper, but more probably is a prostitute. It serves the purpose of God that it's prostitute better than innkeeper, but it's possible she was an innkeeper, but the two may well go together. But she certainly was a, first, a person who bumped along at the lowest level of society. And probably was a prostitute. And wrapped up in this story of one nation going to take another nation's land is a story about one insignificant woman. It could have been an insignificant man, but it's an insignificant woman. And shows God abounding in love, in wrath, remembering mercy. So this chapter is about Joshua finding out what he faces as he obeys God's command to go in and take the land. I hope we realize that we're not physically about taking the land. When we look at these stories, we're not about taking the land physically with swords and spears and things. It's all about entering into the fullness of all that God has saved us for. That's what the book of Joshua for us is all about. It's entering into all that God has given us. So in this regard, the book of Joshua is very similar to the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. So the story of the spies is all about counting the cost, finding out what it will involve to take the land. And the story of Rahab is all about one woman calling for mercy in the midst of this. And the delay in entering the land is for at least three reasons. Joshua is told, go in and take the land, but he doesn't. He waits, and there's three reasons for that at least. The first is to allow the people to get ready. Are you ready for what God has for you this year? In your 201st year of existence, not you personally, but are you ready for it? Because you see, we're not always ready. And sometimes there's something that needs to be done, and it's very clear that it needs to be done, but the people need to be ready. The timing needs to be right. There's something marvellous about the timing of God. Have you noticed that? That, for example, Alpha has been mentioned a couple of times this morning. Alpha wasn't invented by Nicky Gumbel. It was around many years before him, had been created by someone else, but the time wasn't right. And it went through a few 
formats, but the time wasn't right. And then Nicky Gumbel helped on, happened on the scene, and this very gifted, spiritual, talented man took this idea and honed it even more. But more importantly, the time was right. And it took off like a long dog, hasn't it? Because the time was right. So the people need to get ready, my friends. We always need to be ready for the next thing that God is wanting to get us into. So any delay may be to allow us to get ready, to get in a place where we can actually get involved with what God is doing. What time waiting is never wasted. The second reason is to allow the spies to come in and take a survey of the land. We'll come to the why they do that in a minute. But they, the delay is to give the spies time to come in and have a check over the land. And have a good gander at it and see what sort of place it is. And the third reason is to allow one family to be saved. And in the, in the New Testament, that is given as a major reason for any delay in God's activity is to get more people into the kingdom of God. Any delays that God appears to make are in order that people can be saved. Why carry out the survey? Why bother? Why don't they just go in and take the land? It's the land God has given them. Why don't they just barge in and take it? <laughs> Seems good, doesn't it? Well, here's the first reason why they go and take a survey, is to get the facts. They needed to look over the land and check out this place called Jericho. What kind of place was it? They're going to go and have to fight. It's best they know what they're involved in. So the last time this happened, or yes, the last time it happened, was in Numbers chapter 13, where coming into the land from the south, God said, go in, take the land. And uh, they or he or both said, well, we ought to spend spies in. So they sent 12 spies in who checked the land out and said, it's as wonderful as God says it is. It's really great land. Look at the, look at the grapes on this. They wouldn't fit on here. They're going to be carried by great boats on poles and things. But the trouble is, there's people there. We, don't, we stand no chance. Ten of them came back and said, we stand no chance. So the people said, okay, we won't go in then. And disobey God. And that was the reason for the 40 years. So Joshua this time just sends two in. And they're meant to go in and see whether the land is good or bad. Find out about the people, whether they're weak or strong. Identify what sort of towns there are. Establish the agricultural qualities of the land. They're not to rely, in other words, on guesswork. They're to get the facts. It's useful to know the facts. And as you... In this 201st year, the church's existence seek once again to be God's channel of blessing to Hurstman Zoo. Getting the facts is important, isn't it? A vicar in a city centre church talked to an evangelist and said, well, there's not much point in me doing any outreach around here because there's nobody lives around here. I live in an inner city area where it's all just offices and shops. Nobody lives here. So the evangelist did a survey and found that 1,000 people lived within one mile of the church, above the shops and above the offices. And here's the vicar dismissing it as just a place that closes down at 5 o'clock and everyone goes away. No, there's 1,000 people living here. I don't know how many people live in Hurstman Zoo. That's a lot of people. If you had 1,000 people in your church, you'd be glad, wouldn't you? It's a lot of people. Get the facts. Whenever you're asked to do something from God, it's not contradictory to faith to get the facts. Nothing wrong with exploring and finding out what's involved. 
Faith in God shouldn't prevent us from getting the facts. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing, is to count the cost. Jesus said, when one man is going to fight another man, it's good that he sits down and counts his army and then works out how big his army is and whether he's got the resources to do the job. Count the cost. And that was in the context of discipleship. Jesus encouraged sober consideration of discipleship before joining his band. This is not to discourage. The reason for that was not to stop people getting involved, but was to help them understand what's really involved in being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we're constantly having to do that. What does it mean to be a member of the church of Jesus Christ here at Hurstman Zoo? What does that involve? Do I know the cost involved? Because if I don't, the first time that impinges upon me, I'm going to give up and go home, which wouldn't be very helpful. I've got to know what the cost is involved. Here's a quote from a book I read. Giving God space to work will be costly until we learn to love it. There's a famous phrase that anyone who goes to a gym knows only too well. No pain, no gain. My, my phrase is no pain, no pain. I enjoy that. Anyway, perhaps a better way of putting it is no resistance, no growth. When you exercise by lifting weights... That's more than your cup of coffee or your donut. The reason your muscles grow is because you're actually tearing them. The resistance you have to overcome in order to lift the weight rips the muscle slightly. And it's when the body repairs the muscle by filling in the hole created by the tear that your muscle grows. That's why there's pain involved in growth. So when you struggle to do God's will in this sense, when you struggle to follow Jesus in this sense, imagine that you've just hit a point of resistance and that in overcoming it with the aid of God's Spirit, you're actually growing stronger. Exercising muscle. That's counting the cost and saying, I'm up for it. I'm ready for it. So get the facts Count the cost and accept it, of course. And also the third reason they went in was to foster faith. The size of the task, and they come back and say, it is a great land. The people are big, but our God is bigger. That's the point of it, isn't it? Every time we dwell on ourselves, we become overcome. But every time we say, this is the problem, but God is bigger than the problem, and if God is asking us to address this problem, then it's okay. That's what Caleb and Joshua said last time. Don't worry about them, they said. It's okay, God is bigger. But ten only looked at the problem, while two said, no, look at God. The purpose for this is to foster faith. If this is what God wants us to do, then God will help us to do it. And this encourages and builds our faith. So this action is not meant to demoralize us, but to energize us and to mobilize us. As we're based on a great and wonderful God. Jericho is a strategic target standing at the gateway to the promised land. And Joshua is taking one step at a time. One thing at a time. He's not trying to overcome the land in one go. He's going to have a look at Josh, uh, Jericho and say, can we manage this one? Faith is walking step by step. God doesn't ask us to do the whole land in one go. just says, look at Jericho. Let's deal with that one now and go for it. Look at that. 
So that's the counting of the cost. Here's the call for mercy, Rahab. In the midst of all this, God tells a story about Rahab. Why? What's the point of Rahab's story? It doesn't move the story on any further at all. It doesn't give us any more information about the story. The spies went in, checked out the land, they came out, fine. They had a bit of a hassle when they got there, but that's fine. Would have done the story just as well. It doesn't add anything to the narrative. So why are we told the story? Always ask yourself the question, why is this in the Bible? Why does the Holy Spirit think it's important for us to hear about Rahab, who's mentioned three times in the New Testament? This insignificant woman who does nothing in life apart from hide two men at a particular point in life, gets her name written in the, Bible, in the New Testament three times. She occurs in the Old Testament again. She'll marry a guy called Boaz. Sorry, a guy called Salmon, whose son is Boaz. Remember Boaz from the book of Ruth? Great guy. His mum was Rahab. Very unpromising beginnings. So why are we told this story? Because we're told something about the character of God in this. That's the point of it. We mustn't lose sight as we read these Old Testament stories of God's grace. Let me give you an Old Testament quote. It's from Ezekiel, you don't have to turn to it. This is what God says. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Did you get that? This is the God of the Old Testament in the prophet Ezekiel. He says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I would much rather they turn from their wickedness and live. Much rather. So this story shows us that in the midst of the fighting that's about to happen, God's ear is listening out for anyone, anyone who will call on him in faith. Anyone, and it doesn't have to be in a prescribed way, a call for help will do. Here's a New Testament equivalent. This is good, says Paul to Timothy, and pleases God our Saviour who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So when you read the Old Testament, please, my friends, read it with those two verses in your mind. I take no pleasure at all in the death of the wicked. I would much rather they turn from their wickedness and live. You could write over every story of every conflict. God is just weeping that nobody will call. But here's a woman who does. And Rahab is an unlikely candidate. Why tell us about Rahab? Well, because she is an unlikely candidate, that's why. Because she's the most unlikely person you could imagine. If you went to Jericho and thought of somebody who ought to be saved, you wouldn't pick Rahab. You'd pick the important people and the influential people and the powerful people and the rich people, maybe. But you wouldn't bother with this woman who's spoiled her life or had it spoiled. Just a thoroughgoing wretch, I suppose. But that's the point of grace, isn't it? God doesn't go for the people who have influence and power He'll go to anybody who will call on him in faith. This is what grace is all about. Nobody deserves it. She doesn't and nobody else does. Jesus says about prostitutes, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of 
you. Jesus was called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's why the story is told. So wrapped up in this wonderfully big, crucial story, without which the narrative of the Bible tends to fall apart, it's one of those crucial moments, the conquest of the land, very important moment, a story that keeps the narrative going through, is this little story of a woman who has no hope, but who just deals with what she can. And these two guys come in, and perhaps a prostitute's house would be a good place to go because there's always comings and goings of men of all shapes and sizes. Coming and going, maybe it's a good place. Anyway, she treats them seriously. She treats them as the servants of God. Now, the Bible does not commend her lying, and it doesn't commend her immorality. What it commends is her faith. And she sees something is happening. She sees the writing on the wall. She can see the army, in her mind at least, camp the other side of the river. She knows what's about to happen. She's heard the stories. She's put two and two together, like most people in Jericho haven't yet. And she's thinking, we're in for a whipping here. If we don't change, we're, we're in, we're, it's catastrophe. She wants to be saved. Whatever her motivations are, she can recognize the writing on the wall. She calls out to God. She sees herself in a very disparate situation. And she treats the servants of God as if they were God himself. She cares for them, looks after them. Do you remember what Jesus said? The way you look after the least of these little ones of mine, you're looking after me. I'll take it for me. Whatever you did for the one of the least of these brothers of mine, he says in Matthew 25, you did it for me. This is what she's doing for them. So she's treating them as she would treat God. And she just says to them, please, help. And she puts herself at the mercy. She doesn't say, this is what you've got to do. She just says, please have mercy. In the midst of the warfare, please have mercy. They say, okay, that's fine. Bless their hearts. These two men respond in grace. Somehow grace has touched these two men's lives. I'd like to know who what their names are because I want to thank them when I get to see them one day. Because they're men who've caught the message of grace. It could easily have been two others who said, no, you're, the whole lot's going to be destroyed. Sorry, dear. Best thing to do is run. No, somehow they catch hold of the grace of God. Somehow they hear the grace of God. They say, yeah, that's, that'll be okay. Get all your family in your house because otherwise we can't be... You know, responsible for where they are. It's going to be a bit of a melee. It's going to be catastrophe like every war is, isn't it? It's a real mishmash of everything. Well, so long as you're all in one place, we'll keep our bargain. You'll be saved. And that's exactly what happens. They're saved. They go back to Joshua and say, everything's okay. Everything's fine. And when the warfare comes, Rahab and her family will be saved. We'll get to that story in due time. So it's a, a story about counting the cost, moving ahead, taking hold of all that God's got for us. But in the midst, not forgetting the grace of God. It's not just about the big things. It's about the little things. It's about hearing out the call for mercy from people, the grace of God reaching out to these people. So all is ready. The enemy is subdued and fearful. Good place to be. Well, our enemy is not subdued and he's not particularly fearful at the moment, but he should be. He should be, he just doesn't know 
he's up from his down. But he should be because he's a defeated foe, isn't he? Demons shall have to flee. So we don't have to fear the enemy. We have to recognise him, give him in the right sense a bit of respect, don't treat him dismissively, but we don't have to fear him. He's a done deal. Rahab is expectant and hopeful. And I guess with you and me, we realise that in Hurstman Zoo and other places there are people just calling out to God for mercy, but they don't know how to say it or where to go. Do they? But we know they are, don't we? And the Israelites here are now informed and encouraged and they can move ahead on the next stage of this conquest of the land. Counting the cost and hearing the calls for mercy. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that when we called out to you for mercy, you in your mercy heard our cry and saved us by your grace because of some measure of faith in our lives that could connect with you. Not because we were worthy, but because you are a God who acts like that and we are so deeply grateful. And now we are in the kingdom of God. Now we are followers of Jesus Christ. We want, Lord, with all our hearts to engage with all that you have for us to enter into the fullness of what it is to be a son of God and to share this wonderful gospel with as many as we can. Lord, as each of us and together we count the cost of being disciples in a, in a world that is against you, we say, Lord, as we count the cost, we want to embrace it and live in the strength of the Lord. And you are listening out for those who are crying for mercy maybe in their homes, maybe only in the quietness of their hearts, but calling out for mercy. And we want you, Lord, to put us in touch with them so that they may hear the gospel of this wonderful God who is slow to anger and abounding in love, a God of compassion and full of grace. Lord, that's the message we want to take, a God of compassion and grace. Lord, pour out your spirit upon us and pour out your spirit upon this village. And will you help us to live today, Lord, in the fullness of your compassion and grace. For Jesus' sake. Amen.